Welcome to the Credit Up Podcast, where we have conversations with community members about financial well-being. Come on! Credit Up! Credit Up! Credit Up! Financial Empowerment! Anyway, hi. Hi. I think that was loud. Uh, Katie Davis, right? That's me. That's you. And I'm Jeff Klein from Sound Outreach. Where are you from? I am originally from San Francisco. And I've been living on the west, on the East Coast for around seven years, just moved back to the West Coast. Okay. And w- what do you do out there? I work for a nonprofit. Uh, it's called Be- Ideas 42, uh, focusing on behavioral science and applying behavioral science insights to solve social problems. Wow. So I uh, actually knew that already, but our listeners did not. Um, right. The reason why uh, you're here is because I am fascinated by Ideas 42. Um, the work we're doing in Sound Outreach, a lot of it comes out of concepts that uh, I read in the book Scarcity, which um, could you talk a little bit about Definitely. before we kind of get started? Well, like, well, no, let's go back a little bit. How did you get into this work? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, it was a circuitous, windy path. Um, I originally majored in mathematics in undergrad. Uh, then I went and worked in international development in the Peace Corps. Um, and realized that a lot of the growth that I saw was being driven through the private sector and through the economy. So I really wanted to understand economics better. I wanted to understand the financial world. So I went and worked in finance for a few years, uh, the polar opposite of working in the Peace Corps. Right, right. But then I really wanted to transition back into the economic development world uh, and went to grad school to do that at Yale School of Management, where there's a strong behavioral economics focus. And I did my internship with the U.S. government for their development finance arm and realized that uh, really for development finance deals to be successful, it's not really the financing structure that determines the success. It's really about understanding the needs of the people whom you're serving and how you are figuring out how to meet those needs. So I became obsessed with the behavioral perspective, started taking as many behavioral econ classes as I could, doing independent study projects with different professors, and eventually came across Ideas 42 and knew that that was where I had to work after grad school. Wow. So you just said so much there, and I need to back up and unpack some of it. So, okay, so real quick, where were you in Peace Corps? I was in Namibia. In Namibia. And what does a math major do in the Peace Corps? So my job description was to teach math. Um, that makes sense. As that makes you a lot of imagine. sense. Yeah. Um, but it really, the education system there was not well set up to teach mathematics because it's based after a British system where students can actually fail courses, a certain number of courses every year, but still be promoted to the next grade. So many of my students had never actually passed mathematics. But just kept going. But just kept going. Okay. So I really, it it was very challenging to teach at the grade level that I was Mm -hmm. assigned to teach. So I tried to make it fun. I tried to teach basic geometry, Mm -hmm. to do games, to get kids engaged and excited about it. Um, But it ultimately was a bit of an uphill battle in terms of helping them actually be able to pass these tests that they had to take at the end of the year. Got it. But you noticed the private sector was driving a lot of of the 
international development stuff going on. I did. So I, with the school, they wanted to set up a community computer lab for not just the students, but also for folks in the area to take advantage of. So we helped get donations for computers. We worked with a program there funded by Microsoft that sets up small networks of computers around schools in Namibia. Um, And we helped develop a a course curriculum um, that I provided to students and community members. And that was where I really started engaging with people who own local businesses, um, who were getting microfinance loans from various sources. Okay. I was waiting to hear that word microfinance. Exactly. So, but before we get there, um, then you did the private finance world. Where, where were you? Where... I was at a firm called Glass Lewis, which okay. is a shareholder advisory firm. So they advise pension funds and money managers basically on how to vote at annual meetings mm-hmm. and how to vote on transactions. So you got a grounding in... Uh, not just the stuff you were seeing on the ground in Namibia, but you also um, went on to sort of learn all the finance stuff. But then you got fascinated with behavioral economics. Yeah. Was that before you went to grad school or went to, Oh, you said you got to grad school. Yeah. I mean, I think so I what, started— So what is behavioral economics? I yeah. guess that's a question that— Well, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, So I did become interested in the behavioral science perspective even before I went to grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was analyzing mergers and acquisitions, it struck me that a lot of these deals were not value creative. Um, And if you look at the patterns of deal making, you can see a lot of them happen for reasons other than just financial value. So you take out the the rational reasons for this deal happening Mm -hmm. and usually – so if you actually were were to think about the rational reasons for it happening, it, that's those reasons were out the window a lot of the times. So or maybe there was a little bit of that there originally, yeah. but the reasons for the deals happening had nothing to do with actual rational stuff. It had to do with what? I would say the interests of executives, um, an interest in doing a deal and the idea of doing a deal mm-hmm. without being able to predict whether it would actually have a good outcome for the two firms that were combining – Um, particularly when it relates to post-merger integration, there are actually lots of cultural and systems factors that deals might look good on paper on the surface, but when you dig into whether these two companies are actually compatible, they're very much not compatible. So like one group of folks saying, we're going to go acquire this this thing, and then once they acquire it, they're like, oh, that was a good idea, but we didn't really think about this. We just wanted to do it because we wanted to acquire and not because we actually thought about like, what does that mean to blend these two different things together? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And some of that is really hard to predict. So sure, sure. it makes sense that it looks good on paper. And then when you actually try to do it, it's difficult. But sometimes mm-hmm. there are Sometimes there are like ego-driven stuff right. or whatever. Okay. So that gets you to Yale. Yep. And that gets you um, researching this stuff and studying this stuff. And yeah. so uh, back to the question, what is behavioral economics? And, and um, how does – yeah, how, how, do you, how do you see it? Sure. Yeah. So behavioral economics is actually a more narrow term than what we do at Ideas 42. So I was introduced to all of this through the lens of behavioral economics, which if you've read, there's a great book by Richard Thaler um, about how he— See the nudge guy? Yes. He's Uh Mr. Nudge. Mr. Nudge, yeah. Um, the book Nudge also does a great. Oh, there's an actual book called Nudge. <laughs> called Nudge okay, by Richard Thaler and yeah. Cass. People have told me about this guy, but I haven't actually read his stuff yet. Right. So, from the behavioral economics perspective, this is basically economists realizing that human behavior throws a wrench in the way that you model things on an economic basis. So when uh, that's, that's actually the case in life, like we right. we get in our own way. 
all the time. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So for economists, it's about saying, well, where do people's behavior actually depart from what economic models would predict? Okay. And how does that change the way we predict things economically? Right. Um, from a broader perspective, psychologists would say, uh, we've known this all along. We know that human behavior is quirky and follows certain patterns and is predictable in certain ways, but also can be very surprising. So at Ideas42, we try to think about it as a more interdisciplinary pursuit that draws in psychology, social psychology, cognitive science, and behavioral economics all together to tackle different ways of approaching problems. Okay. So I'm going to throw this out there and let me know if this sounds kind of right to you. Sure. Um, there are big marketing companies. Mm -hmm that understand behavioral economics yes. really, really well. Absolutely. They've studied it for decades, mm -hmm. and they understand how behaviors influence buying patterns and things like that. Yep. Um, would you say that Ideas42 is similar to that, except uh, Ideas42 is thinking about using behavioral economics for, for good and not consumerism? Yeah, I would say so. Um, all of behavioral science is tools that can be used to design things, right? There's no inherent morality or ethicality built into it. It's simply— Well, I'm going to call it good or bad. <laughs> right. Um, no, but maybe it's not so black and white. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be used for any purpose. And really, there is no sort of neutral pathway that exists anyway. Anything we create is going to nudge people in one direction or another simply by virtue of the way that it is designed. So understanding behavioral science is really thinking intentionally about when I create programs, products, services, how do I understand the way that people might react to what I'm building? Interesting. Okay, so what are some of the areas that Ideas42 focuses on? Yeah, so consumer finance uh, has really been at our core since the very beginning because mm -hmm. our three founders who were uh, two behavioral economists and a psychologist – specialized in financial decision-making. So and that— what were their names? Uh, Eldar Shafir, Sendhil mm -hmm. Mullenathan, and Antoinette Shore. And they wrote the book Scarcity, which is what I read a couple years ago that influenced a lot of the work that we're doing at Sound Outreach. Exactly. Yeah. So Eldar and Sendhil wrote the book Scarcity. Mm -hmm. um, they brought in another collaborator, Anuj Shah, on some later work, digging even deeper into the scarcity concepts— um, but that work has really been foundational to forming our philosophy around consumer finance, but also around poverty alleviation. Um, and since we've dug into those two areas, really since our founding, we've also branched out to education in post-secondary education in particular, thinking about college completion, um, and now a whole host of work around student financial health. Um, we've also done a lot of work around physical health. Uh, both domestically and internationally, in terms of community health clinics, um, different models of care, um, how people interact with their physicians and with insurance and other systems. Um, and then some newer areas for us that we're just starting to branch out to are criminal justice um, and energy in the environment. But we're already wow. seeing a lot of potential for applications there. Okay, so let's talk about applying this stuff. Yeah. So you just listed a whole different, uh, like a whole bunch of different things that yeah. Ideas42 is focused on. And there's a behavioral economics approach. And there are um, there are interventions or applications to, to this work. So how, sure. how can you give real world examples of how these things sort of apply? And, and let's pick 
consumer finance because that's sure. that's what we're interested in at Sound Outreach. Yep. Um, what are some examples of how that how this works? How Ideas Forty Two how your work works. Sure. So our general methodology is something we call behavioral diagnosis and design, um, which you can think of as an alternative to just taking different solutions and trying them out. So we know from the behavioral science research world that there's a lot of behavioral interventions that can improve people's lives, whether that's well-structured reminders, goal-setting tools, uh, text messaging campaigns, um, a host of different product design features. Um, sort of the concept of the nudge. Exactly. Like a, a reminder to do something is a nudge, right. basically. And, and reminders help in what way? So you could imagine a reminder being helpful at a moment when I'm my attention is focused on something else. As humans, we very naturally have limited attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so a well-timed reminder that links me to the next step, can capture my attention, focus me on taking this action, and hopefully provide a channel for me to do that. So one approach to solving problems could be saying, well, here's a problem. Let's just try reminders and see if it solves it. That's sort of the throwing a dart at a wall approach. Sure. Um, At Ideas42, we know that it can be very expensive to throw a lot of darts at a wall, especially if you're running a rigorous test to see if it works. So um, instead of just sort of taking solutions and testing them out, we try to engage in what we call behavioral diagnosis, where we try to dig in and really first just understand what is the basic problem and is the way we're understanding this problem even the correct formulation? Are we bringing assumptions to the table about how we should be solving it? So I can share an example yeah, if that's please. helpful. Yeah, please. That would be great. <laughs> Thank you. So one project we worked on several years ago. Did, wait, did you just see my face? was like, yeah. wow, what? Huh? <laughs> what does <laughs> like, that mean? Oh, I should give this person an example. <laughs> that would help. Okay, go ahead. So we did some work with Cleveland Housing Network, um, which is a great organization, clearly based in Cleveland, focused on affordable housing and connecting people with the opportunity for home ownership through this lease purchase program where people can rent a home for a certain number of years and then they have an option to purchase it. Okay. Is that, is that their their housing authority or is that is this something different? So this is separate okay. from affordable housing. Got it. Um, specifically, it's a special program for given low income, for lower income residents. Homeless or people coming Not out of necessarily homelessness? Not okay. necessarily. Just low income. Okay. Um, because Cleveland has so much housing stock. They want to um, move people from renting to, to buying. Exactly. Okay. And there are a lot of single family homes available. Uh, and people sometimes just need a little bit of assistance to, to get there. Got it. Okay. Sorry. No, no. Continue. Yeah. So they approached us with a problem they were having. Um, this was work where we, we partnered with an organization. They were formerly called Corporation um, for Enterprise Development, CFED. They're now mm-hmm. called Prosperity Now. Prosperity Now, yeah. Um, with funding from City Foundation. Is that uh, Andrea LaVere? Is that? Andrea LaVere is the yeah. Prosperity Now right, CEO. Right. Yeah, okay. she's great. So we partnered with Cleveland Housing Network. The problem they articulated to us was people aren't paying their rent on time. And we think it's because they don't know about our online rent payment. Uh, So if people knew about our online rent payment system, they'd be able to set it up and pay on time because it's so much easier to use. Of course. Right? Right. Seems, Seems natural. Right, right. When we started digging in and looking at the data, we actually found that people who were using the online rent payment system weren't any more likely to pay their rent on time, right? And the consequences of this were that folks who weren't paying their rent on time 
typically paid it right on the last possible date that they could pay it before they were charged a fee. Of course. And there was actually a misunderstanding among their residents of when rent was due. It's actually due on the first of the month, but the fee isn't assessed until the 10th of the month. So everyone thought of the 10th as being the due date. Right. So the first thing we did was we said, well, maybe the problem isn't online rent payment at all. Maybe it's just that people aren't paying their rent on time. So we said, well, that's a much simpler problem. Mm -hmm. People just aren't paying their rent on time. So what are the behavioral factors that we can uncover that might be driving it? And what in the context might be driving that behavior? So what did you find? So one thing was that all of the materials and really the sort of messaging that people shared between themselves as residents and also with their property managers was that the 10th was the date that the payment was due. Because so it said rent's due the... The first, the first, but you have 10 days to pay it exactly. before the fee is assessed. Right. And right. because everyone approached the 10th as the due date, they didn't actually have a grace period. And very quickly, they would get into a procedure where they actually started the pre-eviction process. So there wasn't a moment for them to make alternative arrangements. So if if they were going to be past the 10th, yep. the, uh, the property owners had already started the process of eviction because they were thinking – you know, they had in their minds a first, but the renter has in their minds a tenth. So if you don't even have a grace period, you, you mentioned grace period, you don't have a yep. day or two to collect yourself or try to find that money if you're late, if you're thinking it's the tenth. So then if 11th comes around, you're already potentially out on the street. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Got yeah. it. And in fact, it's a legally mandated process. And it meant that a lot of the Cleveland Housing Network property managers ended up having to spend a lot of time going around and posting uh, pre-eviction notices on the houses. So it was a lot of resources being yeah, occupied. Yeah, it's a waste of time. And right. From the property managers sure, and also a terrible sure. experience for the residents themselves. <laughs> right. If every month you're getting this note put on your door, yeah, sure. It's creating antagonism. It's yeah. creating uh, fear. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So um, we thought, okay, well, it seems like one of the issues is that people are anchored on this concept of the 10th being the due date rather than the first. So this is a behavioral science concept where... Anchoring? Anchoring. Okay. Right? Where we're very susceptible to having one number being uh, sort of emboldened in our brains, and it's hard to then adjust to another number. I'm used to the 10th. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So they were all stuck on. Don't tell me it's the first. Don't tell me it's the first. Because I know it's the 10th. Exactly. It's always been the 10th, and that's how it's going to be. Right. Yeah. So one issue was the anchoring. Another was that we heard that a lot of folks just didn't prioritize their rent payment. They were thinking about other things, and every other expense that they had felt more urgent than rent payment. So the type of design that we created was really geared towards capturing people's attention. And we thought, well, how can we capture people's attention about their rent payment and get them re-anchored on the first of the month rather than the 10th of the month? So we decided one very promising way of capturing people's attention is rewards. Rewards. Mm -hmm. Okay. So often we think about rewards. So instead of saying capturing their attention by saying you're going to be out on the street. Right. If you don't do this. Yeah. If so you don't change your anchor to this, you're out. Exactly. So you, that could you, have been an alternative it. pathway. Okay. Right. Right. So we wanted to have a positive framing so mm -hmm. that people continue to have a positive relationship with Cleveland Housing Network. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we know that a lot of sort of negative, scary messaging can sometimes cause people to detach even more from a situation, especially when they're in a financial crisis. Of course. So there are these avoidance behaviors we see when someone is financially stressed. Right. So we wanted to keep it positive and we wanted to grab people's attention. Oftentimes we think of incentives as being paying someone to do something. Um, but we think of them more as a way of capturing their attention, of paying for their attention at a specific moment. Okay. Because it's not necessarily that people are making a careful cost-benefit calculation, but their attention might be captured by the prospect of winning a prize. Okay. I see. So so what happened so PrizeLink Savings has been a very effective intervention in the savings world. There's an organization called Commonwealth that's done a lot of work getting credit unions and other financial institutions to offer prize-linked savings. So we thought, well, why, why don't we use a prize tactic here and have sort of an organization-wide raffle for whoever pays their rent by the first of the month will be entered to win this series of prizes. So PrizeLink Savings is, you know, a financial institution. Am I wrong? Is this... You know, we'll we'll have we'll enter a raffle uh, for anyone who saves this amount of money this month. You can win twenty or twenty five hundred dollars or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So they off, they have different structures. Sometimes it's an amount. Sometimes it's a frequency of saving. Mm -hmm. um, the prizes can be big or small, um, but generally they've been pretty effective at at capturing people's attention and encouraging them to take this action that otherwise they might put off for the future. So you know that this works. And it's not just throwing a dart at the problem because you know that prize-linked uh, – what's it called? Prize-linked savings. Prize-linked savings yeah. works. So you <laughs> you thought, okay, let's try prize-linked paying rent on time. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what did that look like? What was the – So we knew it was effective in other situations. Um, they ended up creating a raffle where each month someone was entered to win a smaller prize. Um, and each month you're also entered for a grand prize at the end of a six-month period, which is for a month of free rent. Oh, wow. So we knew there was both this smaller alluring prizes that people might think they have a high likelihood of winning because mm -hmm. as humans, we're naturally overconfident about how likely we are to win something. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it's been covered in other podcasts, but yeah, that's why I never play the lottery, even though right. I could make hundreds of millions. Yep, yep. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, so we developed this prize. We messaged it using a little magnet. They produced some magnets that people could stick on their fridge. Reminding uh, them that if they pay by the first, they could win X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. The messaging was around pay your rent by the first. I think it was something like play for your purse, pay by the first. Um, their marketing people so came clever. up with so a, clever. <laughs> a tagline for that. We nonprofits were really good at coming <laughs> right. up with taglines. <laughs> exactly. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. So they developed a, this fridge magnet. And then we also had monthly postcards with different messages about rent payment. So that was one of the designs we created. Mm -hmm. We also created another design um, because we had the luxury of having quite a few people in the population that we could test out two different types of designs. And the other one was a, a late rent waiver, which was basically a certificate that someone could submit to their property manager and say, this month I'm paying my rent late, so I won't have to pay the late fee. How many of these did they get? Just, just one. Just one. Yes. So in the next however many months, they knew they had this get-out-of-jail-free card yep. that they could play anytime. Exactly. Okay. So this was based on an observation that originally we thought maybe people just don't know about the late fee and they're not anticipating it. And if they knew about it, then maybe they would 
uh, pay their rent on time. In fact, we found everyone knew the late fee, and they already factored it into their rent payment when they planned to pay it. So we thought maybe by giving them this waiver, it would remove the feeling that I can pay rent late every month and make you think, well, I want to save that opportunity. I have a scarce number of times I can pay rent late. It's just once with this waiver. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to pay on time this month so that I can use the waiver later. And then we made the waiver quite large so that it was a hassle to keep with you so that people would hopefully put it in a drawer and forget about it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we had. So these... what happened? Yeah. So <laughs> what was the result? Right. So we tried these two methods. Um, the raffle was quite successful. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically doubled the number of people who paid their rent by the third of the month. So it was interesting because it okay. actually shifted patterns, not just to the first of the month, but actually within those first three days, okay. suggesting that people still were paying it a little bit late, but less late than they were before when they were aiming for the 10th. So this time they were aiming for the first and getting it in by the third. So maybe, I mean, that could have something to do with when they get paid at their jobs. I imagine when benefits are distributed probably has a lot to do with it. Right, Yeah. Um, So we found that the waiver was quite effective. Um, Interestingly, it was just as effective for folks who were on fixed incomes, um, which we originally thought the reverse might be true because if you have a fixed income, it's harder to rearrange your cash flows for an earlier payment. But we actually found that it was just as effective for that subgroup. Okay. Interestingly. Yeah, that's great. The waiver did not work. It just didn't work. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. (laughs) They put it in their drawer. They forgot about it. But it didn't cause people to pay their rent sooner or to avoid the late fee. So it had no effect on when people paid rent. Why? We don't know. Um, We could say, well, maybe it was just not during this time period. Maybe if you tested longer over a full year, maybe the overall effect um, would be stronger. But for the time period that we were able to test it, we saw no effect. I think this really highlights why we test things, which is things sound great on paper. Things work in other contexts, but often they don't work in the context that we're tackling in the way that we'd expect. Sure. Okay. And I'm thinking about a lot of stuff that I want to ask you because I think nonprofits in general, yeah. you know, we don't – a lot. most of us are under-resourced and we don't have the ability to um, – when we have an idea, we, we're going to try something yep. to pull back and say, let's test this first. Yep. We just – we don't have that luxury. Right. Um, even sound outreach. Like we we have these ideas. We're moving forward. We're doing them. Thankfully, they're working. But, uh, you know, there was always this thought in the back of my mind where, you know, okay, we do this for a year. And if it doesn't work, we'll probably have to shut everything down. But right. we're stewards of people's resources, our foundations that support us, our donors that support us. Right. And, you know, thankfully, well, I, this is a loaded comment. Thankfully, we don't have a ton of money that we'd be wasting. But it would be great if we if people threw, like, millions of dollars at us right. to try this stuff out. But we're yep. really sort of shoestring. We're trying this out. Yep. It's working. It's awesome. I'm relieved because it made the last year and a half, two years worthwhile. But your idea is 42. Yeah. And you – that's what you do. You, you have the – tried and true proven methods that you know about and you're also able to come in and test stuff so how does that work like is it only these big uh, entities that are able to you know fly in to to do this work or do you are you able to help smaller nonprofits do this test it or trying things out too or try to 
do interventions to help out as well? So how, how does yeah, so I think there's, there's a spectrum of ways that testing can work, right? In an ideal world, we have thousands of people, we have clear channels and pathways for testing, and we have an unlimited amount of resource to put towards those tests. Um, as you mentioned, that doesn't exist for most nonprofits right. in this country and around the world. Right. Um, so I think it's really about thinking through, first, where should we test? Where does it make sense to test versus just implementing something? Um, and what are other models for lighter touch testing when you can't do the most rigorous randomized control trial? So the way we think about it, um, in an ideal world, go for the randomized control trial, do it as rigorously as you can. Um, we're working with a number of digital financial services companies in Southeast Africa or Southeast Asia and Africa to set up channels for testing so that they actually can run these tests in a much more cost-effective way. So you can think of this in terms of something as simple as A-B testing. Um, a lot of A-B testing platforms, even um, with very limited technology available, can help you test two versions of an email, right, and compare open rates. So there are some tools out there that can give you the same rigor as a randomized control trial. In fact, an A-B test typically is a randomized control sure, trial, sure. but with much less resource being put towards it. So we're helping those organizations figure out what these platforms are, integrate it into their services, whether that's sending out communications to their clients, whether that's testing different versions of their website or application platform, mm -hmm. um, and being able to tell really quickly what result do these two parallel designs have? And then the, hopefully they'll be able to iterate. To, to use that. Yeah. yeah. And in yeah. the future, structure their own tests and be able to answer those questions very quickly and easily. Great. I think even lighter touch than that is just thinking about, like, are the basic data outcomes that I care about being collected? Like with Cleveland Housing Network, um, they had some systems in place to track late fees, but they didn't actually have a record of rent payments originally. So when we worked with them, we helped them set up a system just for capturing that data. Because oftentimes we prioritize the metrics that funders care about naturally, um, but we may not be capturing all of the sort of behavioral outcomes that are important to our program. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Great. Um, so let's talk. Uh, I'm not, not sure how much time we have left, but uh, le I do want to get in a few few points about scarcity yeah. because that's, uh, in my mind, that's the the overarching, you know, we talk about anchoring, we talk about uh, other behavioral economics concepts mm -hmm. that affect how people uh, move through the world. Yep. So what's scarcity's role? So scarcity is really thinking about the psychological impact of what it means to live in a situation with few financial resources. So many poverty alleviation efforts historically have focused on the person in poverty and thinking through what are the, the drivers of that person's behavior? Are there personality characteristics? Is it mindset? Is it motivation? And I think the scarcity work has really thought, well, actually, what about just living in that situation where I don't have enough money? How does that affect my behavior? And... It really started with a natural experiment in India where our founders noticed that sugarcane farmers um, actually have this unique situation where they are in two different states at different times of the year. So before harvest, 
They're in a state of financial scarcity because they have not yet reaped the benefits of harvest, right? right. They don't have much of a cash flow. They're sure. trying to make ends meet before the harvest. After harvest, they're all of a sudden in a state of abundance. So they thought, well, this is actually the same person in two different states. So how about we look at how their decision-making differs before harvest and after harvest? Because you're seeing behaviors for six months that you don't see the other six months. Exactly. And vice versa. Right. Okay. So it's not about observing someone in poverty versus someone not in poverty. It's actually observing the same person in two different situations. Right. And they discovered that actually their decision-making does change quite a bit when they're in their, those two different situations. So they gave a series of cognitive control tests. You can think of um, one of them is sort of like if you've done those puzzles where they turn a shape around in different ways and you have to say which shape is the same one but twisted 90 degrees. Okay. Um, so they used a series of those types of tests to measure people's cognitive just, control. Just basic cognitive tests. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they found that it actually – they performed worse, the same people performed worse on those tests after harvest. Oh, sorry, before harvest okay. than after harvest. So when they have less money, when yes. they're worried about money, when mm -hmm. they're – whatever's – before the money comes in, right. they don't do as well on these tests. Exactly. And And I think the, the way to think about it is that as humans, we have a limited amount of mental bandwidth. So just as uh, tell me about it. the internet yeah. has limited bandwidth, so do our brains. Right. I think I have much less than most people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt that. Ah. Um, so with this limited bandwidth, there's something unique about scarcity. When I don't have enough of a resource, whether that's money or time. Um, or food. Or, or food. Or... Right. Right. I obsess on that resource that I'm lacking, and that takes up bandwidth in my brain. Okay, okay. So, so when you don't have something and you need that something – you think about it a lot. Exactly. To the detriment of other things. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. uh, can you talk more about that? Sure. Okay. So they, they noticed this with sugarcane farmers. They thought, well, this probably also happens in the U.S. So they tested it at a New Jersey mall with shoppers. Okay. And in this case, they couldn't measure people's actual state of financial scarcity. It, was it like the Paramus Mall or something like that? <laughs> I'm not sure which mall it was. It's one of the biggest ones, <laughs> the most New Jersey-ish mall you can find. Okay, sorry. I, inter I keep interrupting you. I'm no. sorry. Go ahead. So they were able to measure people's income. But what they did was before they gave them cognitive control tests, they gave them hypothetical scenarios to think about. So imagine your car breaks down. You have a $300 repair to cover. Your insurance will cover some of it, but not all of it. How are you going to pay for the rest of that repair? So they, they termed that the easy financial scenario to think about. 300 bucks. 300 bucks. Some of it will be covered. Yeah. You'll have to figure out how to cover the rest. Okay. They, also, they gave another group of people a hard financial scenario where it's more like $1,000. And your insurance might cover some of it, but not very much of it. How are you going to cover that expense? So it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Mm -hmm. And what they found was for people who had above median income, so those who were more well-off, they performed the same in either of those two scenarios, whether they were thinking about a hard financial situation or an easy one. So I'm a I'm wealthy New Jersey person, yeah. and you give me this test and these questions and these scenarios, and I'm like, yeah, 300, 1,000, whatever. Yep. And then I do well on the test, yep. on the cognitive test that you give me. Yeah, okay. you, do, you do the same. Got it. Uh, for Either people, one. So like you give the 300 scenario, 1,000 scenario, 
Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Do the same, same performance. Okay, got it. Um, they found that people with below median income, when they were in the easy scenario, they were just thinking about this easy small expense, they also performed the same as the richer folks. But the moment where they departed was when they were thinking about a hard financial scenario, their performance declined. Wow. So it's not that they actually owed anyone $300 or $1,000. They were just given this thing to think about before they took the cognitive tests. And because, well, the, the, I guess the conclusion is they earn less money, so they fixated more on this money problem exactly. before they took the test. And so they had more trouble identifying what the shape was in the cognitive test than exactly. they did when it was $300. So the effect of just imagining wow. that financial situation was enough to reduce their performance to the extent that it was equivalent to losing an entire night's sleep. So if you can imagine that level of decline. I, I can definitely imagine that level because I have a newborn baby. <laughs> right. And my cognitive decline has been precipitous. Is that the word I would use in this? Yeah, precipitous. Yeah. 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 So, um, so it's not that these people are any less smart. Right. It's not that they uh, – it's not their fault, I mean, or anything like that. It's right. just they live in a – in a condition of scarcity, and that condition of scarcity affects decision-making. Exactly. So it's not something about the person at all. It's actually that context of living in scarcity that causes the effect on decision-making. Wow. Um, which suggests that poverty is not a personal failing. It's not a motivation problem. It's not a cultural pathology. It's really just this context where if any of us were in the same setting, we would experience the same effect. But that doesn't jibe with my my worldview of, <laughs> you know, uh, anyone can work hard and make it. Right. Or right. Uh, I, I have this abundance in my life. Why can't this person have abundance in their life? Right. So it gives us, it tells us about what are the challenges that you're facing when you're in that context. But I think on an optimistic note, it also tells us that if you can fix that state of scarcity, that's actually good news because it means you don't have to change the person at all. You just need to change the change context. Change the conditions yeah. and the context. Wow. That's great. That's oh. really good stuff. So um, how's it been going at Ideas42? Have you been able to affect the way that people think about that very concept? Like it's not this. It's actually this. We is it di- slow going? Is it, um, no, is it hard to get people to, to adjust I their think- worldview? Because they're anchored to this one concept. Uh, do you like the way I... I yeah. yeah I, good good behavioral lingo there. Sure. Can you use behavioral economics concepts to change people's concepts change people's around... Mindsets? Well, yeah. unfortunately, we know from behavioral science that it is really hard to change people's mindsets. <laughs> right, right. And in fact, changing misperceptions through things like myth busting typically aren't effective because people hold very fast to the principles uh, that they originally believed. Um I do think that it's changing in the field. I think people have a more empathetic perspective. Um, and I think that in the consumer finance world in particular, there's a recognition that uh, my financial outcomes aren't negative because I don't understand what to do or I don't want to do something, that the scarcity principle is actually what's driving my behavior. 
Um, and in fact, we find that lower income folks are actually often much better money managers than higher income yeah, folks. Yeah, if you don't have enough money to make it through the month, you right. certainly are good at budgeting. Yeah. Whereas if you've got plenty, like I, I don't, it's not that I have plenty, but like I don't, I don't budget. Yeah. I do it in my in my brain. Yeah. Because I I know I'm gonna have enough at the end of the month to right. pay all my bills. Right. You can make mistakes. Right. Mistakes are not costly for you. Exactly. Right. Huh. So I do think that there's a changing perception about this. Um, I think the implications for design really range from just making things easier so that they don't add to people's mental bandwidth constraints, right? So when I apply for benefits, if that's a super onerous process, that's actually going to disadvantage the people who need your help the most. Because they're either going to give up before they start or make a mistake doing it and it doesn't, you know, the paperwork comes back and you're rejected or for whatever, and then you give up. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? And you're actually imposing even more of a burden on people. Right. Um, you should be actually creating slack in their lives right. so that right. they don't have to worry as much and to free up some of that mental bandwidth for all the things they actually want to do. Um, but like instead, take care of their kids and exactly. you know, get food on the table and that, yeah. Live their lives. Sure. Get a job right. or keep their job. Exactly. Fix their car so they can get to their job. Right, right. Yeah, and think about all the different bills that are coming at them and the debt that they have yep. in a calm and rational way instead of one that's influenced by this scarcity in their lives. Exactly. So, yeah, so one perspective is, well, actually, you should just make things easier. Another is, how can we actually create that slack so that people don't have a bandwidth tax? How can we actually increase the bandwidth itself? I like that bandwidth tax. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, do you have time to talk about how? Well, I can just how we improve Slack. Just to summarize it, okay. Um, give people more of the resource that they lack is the simple answer, right? If you're lacking time, figure out a way to reduce work hours and increase hours devoted to whatever it is you need to do. Okay. Um, if it's money, you can give people money. Uh, unconditional cash transfers are something that's been tested quite a bit internationally Mm -hmm. and is just starting to be tested in the U.S. We're just giving people a basic sum of money every month with no constraints on it um, actually appears to improve people's livelihoods, um, and they don't appear to use it for all of the things that we paternalistically look down our noses upon. They're going to buy a lobster. Yeah, exactly. Consumer goods. Exactly. Yeah, people... It appears so far from the international world tend to use that money productively. Right. Um, or a few, few cases where that's not not the case, and that's going to show up in in the news or right. the clickbait or whatever. Exactly. But in general, in general, positive effects on people's not just financial lives but also general well being, in, including emotional well being. Right. From the tests that have been done. Um, And then another approach is, well, is there a way to actually increase bandwidth psychologically? And this is where there's some really interesting work being done by some academics around affirmations um, that's being tested in both sort of the poverty alleviation world, but also in the education world. Um, There's a researcher named Jeff Cohen who's done some work doing affirmations with students who are at risk. It's basically an exercise where you think about a moment in your life when you've been successful and you have to tell someone or write it down on a piece of paper. And that appears to increase people's mental bandwidth. Interesting. After going through that affirmation exercise, I think the big questions are, how long does that last? Right, right. (laughs) And is that enough? Yeah. Uh, So how could that supplement other efforts? 
um, when you think about both the economics of people's lives, but also their sort of emotional well-being. Wow. Well, this is really great stuff. Um, I, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of the things that that uh, I wanted to hear great. about Ideas Forty Two, and for other people to hear. Um, are you familiar with the work we're doing at Sound Outreach? Did I, I give you a little bit of an overview? You did. Okay. Um, any any thoughts? Any tips? Any? Well, what are the big questions that that you're facing? So, we are um, focused on financial counseling, one on one, intensive. You know, checking credit scores, uh, disputing collections yep. with people setting household budgets, um, helping people develop financial goals for themselves, whether it's, you know, save $5 a month, save $10 a month, or work towards um, uh, enough money for a security deposit and first and last month's rent to get out of the shelter or to get a better apartment or to own a home. I mean, we see a wide range of financial goals from the folks we're working with. But um, And then the other thing we're doing is we're testing how microfinance can – can help remove barriers to uh, people getting out of poverty. Yep. So, like, let's say you um, you need to get to this job training, you don't have a driver's license, and you don't have um, car insurance. So, can you get a loan to get you there to mm-hmm. to get those documents so that you can get to the job training? Yep. Understanding that you know you don't qualify for that loan now. Uh, but because our financial counselor is vouching for you, our credit union partner will give you this small loan. And uh, with the understanding that after job training, we know that you're going to have an income of this much money, you'll be able to pay it back. Or um, one thing we're testing out right now is like, let's say your loan to value on your vehicle is 150%. So you owe 10000 but it's only worth you know, 7500 I think my math is right there. I'm not sure. Um, your, uh, you've got 12 months of on-time payments and your credit score is fine, but no one will refinance you yeah. because you owe so much on your vehicle. Well, if our, our counselors can vouch for you saying, okay, you've got 12 months of on-time payment. If you can afford 29% APR on your predatory loan, you can certainly afford 18%. So if you're paying 500 bucks now, you can certainly afford... 350 a month because we know you're paying 500 on time. Yep. So our credit union partner will refinance you because we've done the work to figure out that this person is paying on time. They could definitely afford the refi. Yeah. Does that all make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And it sounds like a lot of those programs are geared towards creating slack, both in terms of here's a moment when a financial counselor is sitting down with you to help you take action on all of these things that ordinarily would be, you know, fall might fall by the wayside because you have so many other urgent priorities in your life. Um, but then also by creating that little bit of financial slack by reducing car payments. Yeah. Um, one tool I would point you towards on the sort of optimizing and cutting costs side is something we've developed with Innovations for Poverty Action, IPA, uh, another research nonprofit based in New Haven. Okay. Um, and CHIBE, which is a health behavioral science organization, a consortium. Um, we've worked with them to develop a website called the Behavioral Evidence Hub that houses a lot of case studies uh, as well as tools. So all of the case studies 
if you've ever tried to read an academic study, um, you might know how frustrating it can be, both because, well, first of all— First, you have to get through the, the pre-ramble, and then exact, it's, it's 90 pages. It's 90 yeah. pages long. Um, sometimes they don't show the designs that they actually tested, but okay. they will show you, you know, 20 tables of regressions of course, that of course. are tough to interpret. Yeah. So what we've done is try to condense rigorous studies that have been done and summarize what was done, what you can actually see the design that was tested. It'll talk about what are the important caveats if you wanted to try something like this, what setting was it tested in, what should you be aware of, and then it has contact information for the researchers. So wow. it's a great resource to just sort of yeah, dig no, into that's fantastic. what's already been done. What's that site again? It's called Behavioral Evidence Hub. It's bhub, B-H-U-B dot org. Okay. Um, and there's also some quick tools that we've developed that we call audit tools. It's basically like a behavioral checklist where you could run through a set of communications and say, what are the typical mistakes and opportunities that you might see in communications um, from what's been done in behavioral science previously? So um, if we know that we help someone refinance their loan uh, – and we want to make sure that they're paying back that loan because we have this relationship with the financial institution. And if there's a ton of defaults, then this whole idea might not work. So if we want right. to, you're saying that we can find a checklist there of, you know. Yeah. So you could look, you could see, are there any relevant studies that have already been done on something like this? There's a lot of like work on paying back defaults and, and repayment. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and then there's also you can take a letter and run through this checklist and say, well, does my letter actually have these components? Is there oh, anything that's okay. already going wrong in this letter that I can very quickly fix? And it links to some resources that tell you a bit more about each principle, whether that's personalization or mm -hmm. formatting or simplification. Great. Wow. So, And if people want to learn more about Ideas42, where, where do they find you? We're right online, um, ideas42.org. Great. Well, Katie Davis, thank you so much for, for this chat. This thanks is for really me. informative. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Great. Thanks. Financial Empowerment. For more information about Sound Outreach and the Credit Up initiative, please visit soundoutreach.org backslash credit up.